There's no president that Joe Biden and his aides like to compare themselves to more than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. After all, FDR and his New Deal transformed the American economy and helped rescue the country from the Great Depression, providing a model for the kind of transformative policies that Biden embraced in his original Build Back Better proposals. It was also Roosevelt who rallied the country to fight fascists abroad, even as Biden now seeks to mobilize voters to reject semi-fascists at home. In his new book, Becoming FDR, author Jonathan Darman recounts how the young Roosevelt, a gregarious, likable politician, not especially deep or thoughtful, with a losing track record as a national candidate, was transformed by a personal crisis that shook him to his core. It's not unlike the personal tragedy that rocked Joe Biden's world after he was elected to the U.S. Senate. We'll talk to Darman about the FDR-Biden parallels, as far as they go, and of course, we'll also discuss the latest on Donald Trump's legal troubles on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So a lot of fascinating parallels between Biden and FDR that Darman kind of alludes to in his book, which is, by the way, a great read. Uh, we don't want to overstate them. Uh, obviously, FDR was a transformative president. We still do not yet know whether Biden will be anything close to that, but certainly a lot of food for thought. But before we get to that, there's a lot of news we have to cover here. And I'll just start out. Look, the queen, let's be respectful, you know, uh, great reign and all that. I am a bit sort of baffled by the kind of, you know, all out media nonstop coverage. I mean, just a couple of days earlier, the Brits got a new prime minister, which actually counts. That barely made the front pages. And then the queen, who has no real power. Isakoff, uh, how, yeah. how, how yeah. long did you work at Newsweek magazine? How many yeah. times did our great yeah. investigative stories get knocked off the cover because there was some royal story that they wanted to do? In fact, I remember- and it always under, me, by the way. I, I remember <laughs> under, Tina, yeah. under Tina Brown at Newsweek, and I'm not quarreling with the decision because- Royal stories do move magazines on the newsstand, or at least they did back in the days when people bought magazines on the newsstand. But I, my, the excerpt from my book on Obama and terrorism was supposed to go on the cover, and the last minute they pulled it for <laughs> you know for some story on the you know the seventy fifth anniversary of. Uh, well, there's a kind of a parallel here for me, which we'll get to in a moment. But uh, well, sir, what's your what's the parallel? We're going to talk about the new conspiracy land, right? Which has been delayed. But, but I will say that the the, the story of of the British monarchy is actually perfect for skullduggery because you know there's lots of scandals. It was it was in some ways born in her reign was in you know some ways born in scandal because if you you know your history that it was Edward the Eighth who had to abdicate his throne because of his affair with Wallace Simpson, a uh, a an American, American divorcee. divorcee. 
Um, and that led to uh, Queen Elizabeth's that father becoming king at a time, and, you know, that, right? A divorcee. Skullduggery <laughs> is going full royalist now. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. right. Exactly. All right, we need to we need to move units. Let's go full full royalist. I only planned a brief reference to this. We've gone on longer than I expected, but uh, we do want to deal with, as I mentioned in the intro, the latest in Donald Trump's legal troubles. Uh, which only seem to be getting greater. So look, the Justice Department has decided to appeal that ruling from the judge ordering a special master. Can I put a pin in that? Because it's not it's not entirely clear that they've decided to appeal. They've sort of threatened to appeal. They have unless uh, she reverses her or or modifies in part in part. Right. Modifies in part, and they they may still appeal in any event. But they've they've basically, I think, in an extraordinarily strategic and clever way, put her on the spot about the two worst. And there were many bad parts of her opinion, but they picked out the two absolutely worst parts of her opinion, put her on the spot about it, and if she reverses or kind of modifies her opinion regarding them, then that's great. They can continue to conduct their investigation in an effective way. And those way. two worst parts are? So the number one is the, the fact that she wants to have some of the most highly classified material in the U.S. government reviewed by a special master. So they want to basically excerpt approximately 100 hyper-classified documents from the special master's review. And the second thing that they wanted to do is to make sure that the FBI and the intelligence community can continue to review and look at these documents, even while her order is in effect, and even while the special master may or may not be reviewing them. And just to be really clear about it, one of the most startling things about her opinion is she indicates or she essentially orders the Department of Justice to stop looking at everything that they seized from Mar-a-Lago and essentially to cease all criminal investigations based upon these documents. And that is a a very shocking and startling thing for a judge to do. It makes no sense because on the one hand, she says one part of the executive branch can, can continue to hold on to these documents and do what they need to do with them. The other part, the Justice Department, can't. And as the Justice Department pointed out in its in its filing, the intelligence assessment here, uh, which is what the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence is doing, is th- that is in- inextricably linked to the criminal investigation because it is the criminal investigation that will figure out whether, you know, uh, foreign nationals or other countries have had access to these documents. That is the national security threat. And the reason it's um, one reason it's such a this is such a powerful argument. Who knows what this judge will do with it? But is that when federal judges are presented with really powerful national security arguments, they tend to cave. They tend to take the government's side. And this judge is unpredictable, to say the least. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But I think it also puts them in a better position to appeal if, yeah. if in the end they have to do that. 
it was a win-win filing. If she if she yeah. does modify her decision the way they ask, they can proceed with the kind of the core of their case, although other parts will obviously drop off while they kind of deal with all the special master stuff. If she denies them, their appeal is much, much stronger. And it's a strong case anyway, because look, we're talking about a criminal investigation here. Already, there are very serious questions as to whether the pre- the ex-president can claim executive privilege for classified documents that are clearly owned by the federal government. But on top of that, when you have a criminal investigation, Mike, we have spoken a lot on this in a different context, a lot on this podcast about U.S. versus Nixon, where Richard Nixon tried to keep the famous Watergate tapes uh, from being turned over, claiming executive privilege. And the court swatted that away and said, you know, not if there is a criminal investigation. Sorry, Mr. President. Well, actually, all right. So I I think the Justice Department is about 95, maybe 98% there on the executive privilege issue. What they wrote in the filing with Judge Cannon, by the way, and it is Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee who we're talking about, who ordered the special master. They wrote, although this court suggested the plaintiff might be able to assert executive privilege to some of the seized records, Supreme Court precedent makes clear that any possible assertion of privilege that plaintiff might attempt to make over the classified records would be overcome by the government's, quote, demonstrated specific need for that evidence. And then they cite U.S. versus Nixon. The only small, maybe 2% distinction here is U.S. versus Nixon was about a pending criminal trial. And what we're talking about here is not a trial in which the Supreme Court said, you know, the judiciary need absolutely needs the best evidence to resolve whether somebody committed a crime and take away their liberty, right? In here, it's an investigation, so it's not quite the same, but I think it's most, it's it's largely the same. And my guess is you'll get some picky Supreme Court justices if this ever gets that far, you know, most likely uh, Alito and maybe Thomas who will find some distinction. But my guess is a majority will stand by the Justice Department I think, here. Mike, the language in U.S. versus Nixon is, is, you know, can't override the needs of judicial process. So what is judicial process? That's not necessarily a trial. Well, isn't, the, the isn't circumstances a, were a pending criminal right. trial. Okay, but but you have to look at the language of the of the opinion, and judicial process can be you know, issuing a subpoena, can it, Victoria? Yeah, and the other thing I would I would also raise is that that U.S. v. Nixon was decided before the Presidential Records Act was passed, and before like a, a vast body of law governing the way the presidents are supposed to maintain both classified records and their own records were passed. So, any of these you know kind of uh, gaps that you see in the language in U.S. v. Nixon have been filled in in the intervening years. I think the the Justice Department has an incredibly strong case on clearly regarding the classified documents, but they also have an incredibly strong case regarding the non-classified documents that are clearly uh, belong to the executive branch and not to ex-president at all. So 
What do you think uh, Judge Cannon does? You know, she is, as Danny said, incredibly unpredictable or predictably unpredictable, if if you want. Uh, she She's signaled strong inclinations to help Trump with his lawyering um, and to help him and to bend over backwards to help him every step of the way. But it's hard to imagine her not modifying her order. It seems like they've given her a very good off-ramp here. I mean, she can she save face by saying that, you know, 95% of these documents, you know, can go to a special master, but the, you know, 100 documents that are marked classified, those stay in the possession of the Justice Department. You know, I don't, we'll see what right. happens. But and by the like- way, just to, to buttonhole your point before about the, how inextricably woven the intelligence assessment review of potential exposure is linked to the criminal investigation. There were all those empty folders that had that were right. labeled having classified records and the records aren't in there. So where did they go? If you're trying to figure out if you want to know from a national security perspective, the potential you know breach of national security, you got to know what happened to those records, which the Justice Department can only get through the criminal process and use of subpoenas. Right. And, and, and by the way, at least according to the New York Times, that intelligence assessment has been paused. It's not happening because the intelligence community agrees with the Justice Department that uh, there's no point in, in, in going forward with this if they have no information from what the FBI is finding out. So... Just, uh, you know, I, this was broadly uh, described as discussing Trump's legal troubles, which are only growing. Uh, we learned today about subpoenas for his fundraising efforts uh, with Save America. That's where they've been raising all this money off the stop the steal claims. And then the question is, what have they done with it? And, you know, I, it sounds like they're looking at sort of potential fraud issues here, you know, saying you're going to raise money for one purpose. Yeah, and scam. Basically a scam. One other, which is, you know. I mean, the question for me we is. We all who, remember Trump University. <laughs> right. The question for me is who really has exposure here? Is it is it really Trump himself if, you know, he again, will argue, hey, the election was stolen, you know, and, and you know, so is there, you know, criminal intent? But what about the, the, the people who are actually involved? What about the people on the campaign, the people yeah. who were, the people who know and who have since said publicly that the election wasn't stolen? If they were involved in this fundraising process, they could be in real trouble. And this is going to be a classic, but this is, this has all of the hallmarks of an incredibly long investigation that's going to take a lot of time for them to sift through, where they're going to work their way through from the smallest fish up to the biggest fish. You know, they're going to be, they're going to be interviewing the person who wrote the disclosure notice on the website where the donations were made before they even get to Trump. So it's, you know, and, and Trump has has a, a unique ability to find that middle person who becomes the fall guy for these problems. Whether or not they make their way all the way up to Trump is unclear, but it's there's certainly a great deal of vulnerability to wit Steve Bannon just getting indicted this oh, right. week. Didn't in even New mention York, Bannon. Let's not forget. Did you see him in handcuffs during the perp walk? I mean, he loved that was every stunning. minute of that probably. He was uh, you know, He's not going to love it when he's in the the Huskow, as they're now calling <laughs> right. it. No. 
No, he won't. He won't. All right, we've got a couple of other matters to a cover. A couple of cool things to announce. Self-promotion department here. Kleinman, why don't you go first? More, well, more content from Skullduggery Media coming yeah. your way. Yeah. Uh, let me do the self-promotion uh, to spare you the uh, okay. indignity of having to do it yourself, Isakoff. Yeah. Uh, the fourth season of Conspiracyland, your narrative podcast series on how conspiracy theories uh, are driving our politics and vice versa and the innocent people who get caught up uh, in them. The latest season is is called The Strange Story of Havana Syndrome, and it, it is indeed a very strange but very compelling story in your telling. Um, so, Mike, just quickly tell us, it launches uh, next week. Uh, right. Why did you want to delve into Havana syndrome. Well, first of all, I was always intrigued by it. I mean, it seemed like such a bizarre but compelling story. All these diplomats and spies getting sick with all these strange ailments, you know, hearing loud piercing noises, getting, you know, vertigo, dizziness, headaches, and, you know, in some cases getting seriously ill. You had brain injuries here. And the question was, what's causing Right. What was behind all this? From the get go, the Trump administration blamed the Cubans and called these the result of targeted attacks. And that has led to years of media stories, investigations, internal debates within both the Trump and the Biden administration about all this. And I, I was like intrigued. Is it, you know, hostile attacks? Like, how does that happen? Who's doing it? Where, you know, originally what the Trump people said was the Cubans. The, we, you know, Rex Tillerson was the Secretary of State saying these are targeted attacks by the Cubans. Trump says, you know, they're, some, they're doing bad things in Cuba. And of course, Marco Rubio and uh, Bob Menendez, the two Cuban-Americans in the Senate, jumped all over this. And um, it started the process of completely unraveling what was one of the hallmarks of Barack Obama's foreign policy, which was normalizing relations with this country that we essentially had been in the midst of a Cold War grudge match for a, a half a century. And Mark Seaman, our producer, and I went down to Cuba last spring. And, you know, the fact that we have strengthened sanctions against Cuba, we've cut them off. It began with a process that began with Havana syndrome was clearly visible. They are suffering in Cuba today. Shortages of food, medicine, rations. Uh, Cubans are lining up at the Panamanian embassy to go to get flights to Nicaragua so they can come to the border. 170,000 expected this year more than the Mariel Boatlift. So, uh, you know, we're telling the story in part of just how U.S.-Cuba relations have been hurled back to the dark days of the Cold War. Yeah. Um, largely as a result of this. People have, will have to decide themselves when they listen to this uh, podcast series, whether they think it's, is it a mystery? Is it a conspiracy theory? But what it has in common with the other Conspiracy Land podcast you've done is, is that people, politicians, uh, elected office holders, they exploit 
these stories for their own political purposes and to advance their agendas. And that's exactly what happened here. You mentioned uh, Bob Menendez and, and Marco Rubio, but uh, the, you know it, the, it's also the Trump administration, um, you know, clearing out the embassy. But one of the in the first episode, Ben Rhodes really has some excoriating comments to make about Biden and how Biden has largely maintained the Trump policies of cutting off Cuba. Yeah, that was fascinating because it was really unvarnished. Uh, ben Rhodes yeah. really went after uh, the administration. He, he had a personal stake in this, having been the architect of this policy for, for Obama, and he was pissed. That is, it's really interesting. All right. Well, I hope that's a sufficient tease for our skullduggery listeners to download Conspiracy Land next Speaking week. Speaking of teases. So wait, yeah. there's more. Well, okay. Right. <laughs> and Isn't there's there more? more. All right. Uh, yeah. So since you did that one, I'll uh, fall on the sword and say we also, uh, it was reported on Friday in Axios that Clyman and I are doing a book about the multiple investigations into Donald Trump. Since uh, they only seem to be proliferating, <laughs> um, this is a uh, going to be a lengthy project that's going to take a while because we will want to know what the resolution is. We've been focusing a lot, as Skullduggery listeners no doubt know, on Georgia because uh, Fonnie Willis, even with all the classified records uh, investigations and January 6th by the Justice Department, it seems like the Fonnie Willis Fulton County investigation is the most likely to lead to an indictment of Donald Trump most quickly, right? That's on a fa a relatively fast track. And we've been doing a lot of reporting on that, and there's a lot to talk about. That would be the about. most momentous uh, criminal trial in, in American history. Well, not since, since Aaron Burr was tried for treason. <laughs> oh, come on. Aaron Burr was never president. Uh, I mean, you know, tried to be, but he never made it. <laughs> but it's also, it's also a fascinating story about Georgia, which is ground zero for the fight for American democracy. It's the, it's the, the cradle of the, of the civil rights movement. And, you know, all of this fascinating um, history um, will be a backdrop for this story. So. All right. So I hope that's a sufficient tease for our still to be uh, named <laughs> title book. Which, Skullduggery uh, listeners, yeah. there'll be a at least a Skullduggery mug, uh, maybe even a mug and a T-shirt if you come up with a good title. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Crowdsourcing the title for our <laughs> book. Right. OK. All right. Lots to talk about with our guest, John Darman. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us our old Newsweek colleague, Jonathan Darman, author of the new book, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. Jonathan, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So a couple things. First of all, congrats. Uh, the book is a great read. After Washington and Lincoln, there's probably have been more books about FDR than any other president. Possibly his cousin, Teddy, is up there as well. But I got to say, I mean, I've read a chunk of those books and you've got details I have not seen before. Really amazing ones about uh the arc of FDR's life. So we want to get into that. But, you know, one thing that struck me, and I'd like to start off on this, is 
There are some parallels here in the life of FDR and the life of our current president, Joe Biden. Both of them had personal crises that they had to overcome. They both started out as sort of gregarious, likable politicians, but not taken especially seriously. But over time, they did. And of course, um, with Biden, he kind of looked to FDR as a bit of a model, uh, the New Deal as a sort of model for build back better and all. So tell us how you see the parallels between our current president and the one you've written about here, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about Joe Biden the entire time that I was working on this project, um, because as you say, they are two politicians. They're very different men in a lot of ways, but they're fundamentally shaped by this experience of personal tragedy. In Biden's case, as we all know, it's the loss of his son, the loss before that of his wife and his and his daughter. And in FDR's case, the sort of experience that really, I think, shaped his life and his character was getting polio at the age of 39. I set out to write a book about the Roosevelt presidency, and I, I thought I was going to do polio in about half a chapter. And it was really only when I sort of started to wrestle with this problem of getting at Franklin Roosevelt's inner life, which is not an easy thing to do. And all those books that you mentioned before, you know, anyone who writes them wrestles with it that I start that I really understood that the polio story was something totally different from what I had thought it was. It's not just about what he did to sort of deceive the public about his disability. It's really where all the things that make Franklin Roosevelt someone who can lead the country through the Depression, through World War II, through times that are even harder than what we're living with through now. It's where it all comes from in him. Before he got polio, he was a charismatic and charming guy, but he was also pretty shallow and incredibly self-centered. And it's only when his life gets thrown up, thrown all his plans are sort of thrown up in the air, his life gets upended, that he's forced to develop these new qualities of character, like empathy and strategic thinking, um, and this sort of ability to foster hope that are going to be the things that he uses when he's president. And I think you can look at Joe Biden's life and see a lot of that, you know, a parallel there. The greatest success that Biden has had in recent years has been connecting with people who are going through moments of struggle. I think the sort of, you know, the Biden revival began, uh, you guys probably remember that moment when he went on not long after the death of his son, Beau, and he went on uh, the Colbert show and talked about, about the experience of grief and what he was going through. And it was such a human and, and incredibly poignant moment that people who had sort of, you know, written off Joe Biden before as this guy, people like us, who this guy who sort of, you know, talks a lot and is really full of himself. You could see this as someone who has an understanding of the human condition that is unique. And I think that a lot of that was sort of what propelled him to the presidency in 2020. There was this sense that the country was going through a moment of profound trauma. And this is someone who understood trauma. And as I describe in the book, that was a huge part of FDR's rise to the presidency in 1932. It's not that the public didn't know anything about polio. People knew a lot about FDR's polio, and that's one of the reasons why he was able to connect with the country in that moment. You know, John, I, I was going to get to this uh, later in the interview, but since you brought it up, this idea of the relationship between 
the illness or personal tragedy and and connection, the ability to connect with the American people is so interesting. And Roosevelt did it in, in a lot of ways, I imagine. But the one that we're sort of most familiar with were those fireside chats, which were very intimate. And I think it's in, I think you have a, a description there of, of someone who was in the Oval Office when he was actually doing those chats. And uh, it was almost as if, and there were a lot of people there, it was almost as if Roosevelt wasn't aware of anybody in the room because he was so connected to the people, to the American people. And Biden doesn't, the media environment has changed so radically, you know, in the age of social media, fragmented media, 24-hour cable, it seems to me that something that was, that actually Joe Biden really had a lot of those same abilities, but he's, he's held back by the way media has changed. How has he dealt with that? How has he tried to establish an intimate relationship with the American people? And to what extent um, has he succeeded or not? Yeah, that's that's another one of the reasons why I was drawn initially to writing about FDR, because sort of it's not just Biden. It's as long as as I've been writing about politics, which is as long as I've known you, uh, Danny and Mike, we've said about whoever is the president, like he needs to do fireside chats. You know, he needs to connect with the American public. It's sort of it's sort of, you know, FDR is the gold standard for how you form that bond. And I think when you look at this sort of Biden FDR parallel of how you channel your experience with personal crisis into connecting with a country that is experiencing crisis at large. There's sort of two, there's two elements of it. One is just the sort of personal connection in which Biden and FDR, there's really, you know, a a very clear parallel. Like, so there's a scene in my book where FDR is, is the governor of New York in the early 1930s, and he's getting ready to run for president. And he's at a political event and he sees a state trooper who has been paralyzed in a in a motorcycle accident. And FDR makes his way over to this man and he leans in close to have a conversation with him. And the reporters are there covering it and they're sort of trying to hear what he says. And none of them can hear anything except for the end of the conversation where FDR says to the man, he says, let me hear from you, my boy. I know what it is. And I think like, you know, when I when I came across that, the first person I thought of was Joe Biden, because how many times have we seen that scene where Joe Biden is at some kind of public event? He encounters someone who's in who's in experiencing grief and he's able to form this instant connection and he gives them his phone number and he says, stay in touch with me. And that's exactly what FDR was doing there. So in that sense, there, there's really this parallel. What FDR was also able to do, though, was apply the lessons that he had learned in his own experience, overcoming setback to the country at large as he's as he's leading them. And I think the fireside chats are a great example of that. I went back and looked at this fireside chats and a lot, and, and they're not soaring oratory. They're really detailed and dense descriptions of what the country needs and what the country is, what his plan is. And I, when I read that, knowing what I know now about FDR's polio, I see someone who's been through a crisis because like, think about it. If you, if you, if you have a medical crisis or you have a loved one who has a medical crisis, you want details, you want the path forward. And, you know, we today with, with politicians, a lot of the time we'll say like, oh, they, they get lost in the weeds. They need to inspire us. But actually in a moment of real dire crisis, I think the public wants clarity and direction. And FDR understood that in part because of what he had been through himself. 
So you mentioned something when you were speaking with Mike that that really struck me, which is not just about FDR's personal evolution, but also about the kind of post-illness deception that he engaged in. And I'm particularly curious about how his illness and the way he dealt with it and presented it shaped our modern understanding of the president as showman or the president as a character that's presented to the public. He clearly grappled with this and created a particular image that he wanted to project to the American public, but there was a real base of deception to it too. And in some ways, maybe one that every president since him has followed in some way, shape or form. You know, it's, it's a great question. I remember a moment in early in the Trump presidency where Donald Trump, being the you know great student of history that he is, was talking about sort of being shown around the White House and being shown places where they had accommodated FDR's wheelchair and the ramps that they'd installed. And Trump said, well, because it was because he didn't ever want anyone to carry him. And that's hilarious to me because FDR had people carry him all the time. What he didn't want was for anyone to see him being carried, anyone in the public. And that's the key distinction. And that really, that sort of focus on the sort of theatrics around concealing the disability, that becomes much more of an issue in the presidency than it was in in his rise to the presidency after polio in the 1920s. And this is one of the big surprises and revelations to me working on this was that after FDR gets polio at age 39 in 1921, for the next decade, polio is a big part of his public profile. They announce it to the public. They announce it with a lot of deception. The first story announcing announcing the diagnosis in the New York Times quotes his doctor saying, there's no reason that anyone need fear a permanent disability, which is just complete baloney. And the doctor would have known that. But In the years that follow, the public, anyone who's reading about Franklin Roosevelt knows that he's had polio and he's really devoting his life in a lot of ways to his own recovery and to helping other people who have experienced paralysis. And even when he makes a comeback in politics in the late 1920s, running first as governor of New York and then for the presidency, his sort of polio comeback story is central to the narrative that he gives to the country. And it's part of the conversation in the other direction, too. When he jumps into the New York governor's race in 1928, the headline in the New York Daily News the next day, the first, after he announces he's running, is they nominated a man on crutches to be the governor of New York yesterday. And there was this sort of idea that he was sick and that he was weak that was swirling all around his candidacy um, for the governorship and later for for the presidency. So it's that was a big surprise to me was how much of a central part of his political identity polio was. And I think actually that's why he had a lot of success connecting with the public when they were experiencing, you know, real tra- trauma. You know, picking up on on that John, first of all, I remember um some years ago I was in Grosvenor Park in London and there's a statue of FDR standing tall. <laughs> No braces, no wheelchair, no crutches, you know, just standing tall. And that just struck me as sort of the ultimate example of, you know, image over reality. 
But the parallels with Biden can be mostly positive, but there's one not so much. And that is, you know, you recount in your opening chapter this incredible scene where FDR is getting ready to give his acceptance speech at the 1936 Democratic Convention. And it's a pretty important speech. And just as he's going up to the platform, his braces come off. There's a some sort of collision. And all his advisors, led by Jim Farley, you know, surround him so the public doesn't see he's fallen down and is having a hard time getting up. And I just wonder, you know, um, I'm probably on some shaky ground here, but I'm going to go there anyway. Um, you know, Biden's age. Um, there's, you know, been a lot of speculation and, you know, curiosity, if not more, about his, you know, is there some cognitive decline there? And obviously his aides protect him, even when they're a bit nervous themselves. And I just wonder if you see uh, a bit of a parallel there. I, you know, for me, I think about, you know, my book ends at the beginning of the Roosevelt presidency, because the whole point is essentially that I wanted to look at how he became the man who could lead the country through everything that it was going to experience in the depression and the war. But for me, the real, the real sort of, when you think about that danger of a president who's physically incapacitated comes when you think about the end of the Roosevelt presidency. And he runs for a fourth term in 1944. And he's, I think, seriously ill, seriously ill and, 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 and on a certain level aware that he's dying. And, you know, I think I think if you're going to fault FDR for anything, it's this is this is common among a, a common view among a lot of historians. It's failing to really reckon with that in thinking about who he's selecting as as a successor and the way that he brings that successor, Harry Truman, into the conversation. So really, when I think about the conversation around Biden's age, there's, you know, I don't know enough any at all to think about. I haven't seen anything that suggests Biden's experiencing real cognitive decline or that he's not now going to be fit for the presidency. It's the question of, is he thinking about this? What if he does lose that ability? And is he doing everything to bring in Vice President Harris so that she can be uh, someone who can step in? We, we don't see many signs of that, do we? That's right. And, and neither did FDR bring Harry Truman in no, uh, I, to the inner councils. Truman didn't even know about the atomic bomb that was being developed. Exactly. And it's sort of the, the archetypal example of, of the danger of excluding, you know, the, the nature of all of these guys as presidents is to sort of keep the vice president at bay to a certain extent because they think they've already done them, you know, a great favor and FDR was completely ruthless in that respect. He 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 churned through vice presidents and didn't really have the time of day for them. But I think, you know, what when he picks Harry Truman for pure political reasons and doesn't do anything to help him, that's the example of what he then leaves Harry Truman facing is the real cautionary tale for what we should be thinking about with with an aging president. So one of the things that Roosevelt is obviously known for is uniting the country to deal with the enormous challenges that the United States faced, the Depression, with uh, World War II and democracy imperiled. And that's part of what he did in those fireside uh, chats, empowering the American people to help themselves, uh, offering a new social contract, but also asking for their sacrifice. Biden, his candidacy was in part premised on being a uniter. He's always uh, talked about his ability to do that because of, to use that word again, his, his empathy. 
much of that forged by his personal tragedy. But he gives this speech in Philadelphia last week in which he takes on and, and lashes out against the MAGA extremists. And it, it was interpreted by a lot of people, not just Trump supporters, as an attack sort of uh, on all Trump supporters. I wonder, what do you think FDR would have thought of, of that speech and that approach? Yeah, I think that FDR would have, frankly, cheered on that approach. And I think he would have rejected as a false choice this idea that you have to choose between attacking your opponents and your enemies in, in, in harsh rhetoric and inspiring and uplifting the country. So, you know, can I just break in there? FDR was no foreigner to harsh rhetoric, economic royalists. He denounced exactly. Republicans in pretty harsh language exactly. for much of his presidency. I think like this sort of to me, the moment that that sticks out is at the end of the 1936 campaign. And he says, you know, of the, the money that he, he describes, these moneyed interests that are organized against him. And he says they're united in their hate for me and I welcome their hatred. But then at the end of the speech, he talks about how the thing that's going to save the republic is peace, love and goodwill toward men. So he's literally doing both in the same speech. And I think it's because he believes on a certain he believes in all of it. So when you look at Biden and this whole conversation we're having now about the politicization of this of the of, of the, the conversation about democracy and whether he's you know loading in other democratic issues into this sort of description of the of the democratic moment, for me the FDR example shows the litmus test is does he believe it all? If he believes that all of these things are linked um, and and are coming from the same place, it'll work. Because I think that FDR did when he was described, when he was doing both of those things at the same time, he believed that the country in that moment was facing a dire threat from these interests and that his program was the thing that was going to save it from the abyss. So following up on that, in the wake of his illness, which you say changed him a lot personally and certainly changed the way he presented and interacted with people, did it? alter his politics, his ideology, what he supported in any way? Or was he much the same person ideologically before and after? That's a, another great question. I think that before he got polio, he was a progressive in name, but it was this sort of abstract idea of helping people. He was pretty interested in international affairs, and he was interested, frankly, in advancing his own career. He gets polio and it, and it really introduces him to the concept of suffering, not just his own, but other people's in a real and tactile way for the first time. I mean, one of the most sort of enlightening things for me in researching this project was reading the letters that other polio survivors wrote to him in the first days of his illness. So they announce his polio diagnosis and they announce again with the whole deception thing that he's making a very speedy recovery. And that gets all these people writing letters saying, what did you do? I, you know, my, my child has polio. What, I'd love to find out what you did. And FDR to his credit responds to these people and he responds to them in a lot of detail. And other people write to him having lived through polio and they describe what, what they've learned from the experience. There, there was one letter that someone wrote to him where they he described having been paralyzed and been in a hospital for seven years 
And he described the way that fear and anger and shame had sort of, you know, impeded his recovery. And he said, Mr. Roosevelt, whatever you do, don't worry. It won't help any. And that, frankly, is one of the moments where the book sort of became clear to me because I see a direct line from hearing that from people to someone who can say, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So it's really that connection with what it what it means to be suffering that allows him to think, okay, what are what how do how do we direct government to help people? So I so do you see a direct line between that and and the Social Security Act? I mean, is that where it ultimately ends up? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think and this this gets back to the Biden conversation in a certain way. It all comes from this idea of of addressing the crisis of the moment, of showing people that you are completely focused on addressing the crisis of the moment. And this FDR is, is in my mind, a real pragmatist. And we use that term today and, and, and it gets associated as being like someone who's not of the left or of the right. But he, in FDR's sense, he's someone who wants to try a method and see if it works and then move on from it. And that very much comes from polio as well. He's determined to walk again. And he wants to, you know, he has doctors who are telling him that that's going to be very hard, if not impossible. So he tries all these methods and he commits to them and he'll see if they work or not. And that's exactly the approach that he takes when he assumes the presidency is say, okay, we have this, this country that's on the brink of collapse, that's a, whose economy is on the brink of collapse. What are we going to try and what are the new ideas that we're going to embrace? And that's really the root of the transformative New Deal policies more than any ideological agenda. So, um, John, as I um, said before, there's a lot of fascinating details uh, in your book. And, and one that leapt out for me is an episode pre-polio when FDR is Assistant Secretary of the Navy. By the way, the Secretary of the Navy at the time was a guy named Josephus Daniels, who was a notorious white supremacist from North Carolina, who engineered the overthrow of the government in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, and um, led to um, massacres of uh, African Americans in the city. But FDR, as Assistant Secretary, oversees an investigation into a gay sex scandal at, among Navy personnel in Newport, uh, Rhode Island. And he gets nicked pretty hard for his conduct in that. Tell us that story. It's it's a great story. Um, and I think, you know, you'll appreciate, Mike. Um, to me, it sort, of, it sort of starts the way a lot of scandals do with the obsession of an obscure government bureaucrat. There's the, in the moment, there's the, a lot of talk about bad stuff that's happening around the Newport Navy Yard. There's concern about prostitution, there's drug use. And most frightening of all is this idea that there is homosexuality there. And Josephus Daniels, the, the Navy secretary you were just talking about, is a sort of Southerner um, who, who views himself as a morally upright man. And he's horrified by this. And he creates this interest in what's going on in Newport and a obscure government bureaucrat named Urban Arnold comes up with this idea that they are going to send young Navy personnel, young, attractive male Navy personnel to entrap gay men who are having sex with other men around Newport. And they do this under the 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 Navy Department's authority. Um, and ultimately, it's Franklin Roosevelt 
who has authority over all of this. And it was, it's horrifying to us now because, you know, they are persecuting gay men, but it was horrifying to people in 1919 and 1920 because they were sending what they thought of as healthy, young, straight Navy men to do unnatural things in their eyes with other men. And so, you know, FDR, the fact that he didn't see, it was, it was a harebrained scheme, to put it mildly. And, and the fact that FDR didn't see that coming and didn't think about what, it, what the effects of this would be on everyone involved, I think shows the limits of his character before polio and the limitations, the absence of the empathy that's going to define him later on. Can I just point out, there's, a, there's an interesting coda to that story. Decades later, FDR is president after polio, and there's a top State Department official, Sumner Wells, who is being investigated for um, sex with rail porters, African-American rail porters, and their demands that he fire Sumner Wells. And FDR is extremely protective of him. Now, there's two ways to look at it. I mean, he knew Sumner Wells. He was a friend. So he's just befriending somebody who is of his social class and who he knows and likes. But also, it also may speak to a, a greater sense of empathy in the way he looked at homosexuality. I've thought about that as well. Um, and I, I read uh, James Kirchick's book about uh, the sort of secret history of gay Washington. Um, and, you know, and this is a subject that's of long interest to me, sort of the, the, per the perennial gay sex scandal in every presidency. And I do think that there's a difference in FDR's reaction to these two scandals. He is, as, as you say, when the Sumner Wells thing happens, He's really reluctant to get rid of Wells, and he's and he's reluctant. He, he doesn't even want to engage on the topic, which which was you know not not brave, but but was was compassionate at least. I think that um, he's a he's a pretty tolerant guy, and you see that you know a lot in his in his relationships with the women that Eleanor Roosevelt bring into their lives in the 1920s. Before she, you know, I I, I spend a lot of time on Eleanor Roosevelt's relationships. I describe her relationship blossoming with Lorena Hickok in the 1932 campaign. But before all that, she has a lot of friends who are who are pretty clearly lesbians. Um, and other people in the Roosevelt social circle are sort of shocked by it. But FDR is able to sort of, you know, welcome them and, and, and you know, make them feel like they're part of the family and, 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 and extend friendship to them because they mean something to Eleanor. And that's a kindness and a generosity that he's able to show to Eleanor that he never showed in the years before in any aspect. Yeah, well, I wanted to, I was going to ask you about it because you write a lot about Eleanor and they had, to say the least, a complicated marriage. How did FDR's polio, his illness, shape that relationship and partnership? Yeah, I, I loved the time I spent working on Eleanor Roosevelt's story here because her transformation is in a lot of ways more dramatic than his. So when my book begins, she's 35 years old, she is dealing with the aftermath of the Lucy Mercer affair where FDR sort of humiliated and betrayed her with all of Washington to look on and see. And she's sort of lost and she's terrified of the public realm. Um, when, he's, when he's running for, office, for the vice presidency in 1920, a reporter comes to Eleanor and says, what do you think about the issue of women's suffrage? 
which is the big you know, issue of the day. And Eleanor says, I don't really have strong feelings about that either way. Personally, I'm contented with my husband and my children. I was astonished by that. I had, you know, completely at odds with your image of Eleanor Roosevelt. But of course, it was much earlier in her life. Well, but but that's the thing is that the transformation happened so fast, even within like four or five years of her saying that she's not only going to have strong opinions about women, whether women should vote. Yes, she thinks they should. She's going to be one of the most powerful women in the Democratic Party with a power base that's all that's completely independent of her husband. And she's going to be writing articles and giving speeches about how women need to be ruthless in organizing so that men will take them seriously. And I think it's polio that's sort of the great accelerator of all of that. When Franklin gets sick and is then pursuing recovery and rehabilitation, Eleanor is left to be the sort of representative of the family in the public sphere. And she goes out there at first reluctantly But she very quickly discovers that the sort of big world of ideas and of action is the place that she was always meant to be. And she also, you know, as as you said in your question, Danny, this is a story about how they renegotiate their marriage. That's what they're doing in these years is taking a marriage that was broken and making it into a new kind of partnership that's sort of based in their shared commitment to serving others. And I think in this really unique ability that they both have to reinvent themselves in the middle of life. So just bringing uh, bringing the story back to the present, FDR had plenty of experience uh, dealing with populists, demagogues. Obviously, he dealt with the rise of fascism, but I think Huey Long was around (laughs) during this period. Father Coughlin was also on the radio during this period. How would he have dealt with someone like Donald Trump and particularly uh, Donald Trump, Trump's sort of darker impulses? I think he would have been, this is also a question I've thought about a lot. I, I was working on this book through the pandemic, through the 2020 election, through its aftermath. And I would, in some of those dark moments, console myself by looking at FDR in 1932 in another dark moment. I mean, the stakes are, are higher even than in a certain way. You know, FDR wins the presidency in November of 1932. Um, and the night that he wins it, he, he, the last conversation he has with his, is with his son, Jimmy. And he says, Jimmy, all my life, I've only been afraid of one thing, fire. Tonight, I'm afraid that I don't have the strength to do this job. And he does do the job and he's able to inspire the country somehow. And, and in those sort of dark moments of the last couple of years, I would look particularly at these words that he said when he was running for president in 1932. He said, out of every crisis, mankind rises with some share of greater knowledge, of higher decency, and of purer purpose. And, you know, it's hard a lot of times today to find, to, to, to believe that that's true, that we're going to come out of all of this with higher purpose and decency and knowledge. But he said it in in that moment and people believed it. And I think people believed it because he believed it. And he believed it because he had lived it in his own life. And I think that, you know, we can talk a lot about FDR's gifts as a political strategist, but the best answer to Trump's division and Trump's fear is real and meaningful talk about hope. Um, that that is gonna that is gonna that people are gonna respond to because they sense that it's real. 
Is there any character or figure on the American political stage today that reminds you of FDR? I've thought of, of that a lot too. And I think the the sort of the consolation here is that when I, when I started this, I thought of FDR as the quintessential political natural and like sort of a once in a century talent. And I think, well, that sort of is depressing because there's no one who out there, you know, if, if we have to wait for a once in a century talent, like maybe we're not going to get through this. I think that what this story shows is that FDR's genius was not something he was born with, but something that was made and made by the hardest experience of his life. And I think, you know, hope is this word that gets talked about a lot in our politics so much that it's become sort of meaningless. And I think for me, what it's really made me do is say, is say we should assess politicians differently when they talk about hope. We should ask when have they needed it in their own lives and what did they learn from that? Because that's really what what's going to save us all in the end. Some men are born great. Others have achieved greatness and others have greatness thrust upon them, as Shakespeare said. I think FDR is the perfect example of the last part of that sentence, having greatness thrust upon you. In any case, uh, John, as I um, uh, mentioned, it's a uh, really engrossing read, a great book, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 